You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. You're listening to Like Flint Radio, which you can find at www.likeflintradio.com. I'm your host, Andy Tate, and I'm joined by my good Aussie friend and co-host, GK. GK? Tell me, how is Table Mountain today? Ah, Table Mountain. I think it's closer to you, but it's doing very well. Um, <laughs> good weather at the moment. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Doing very well. Thank you. Oh, that's cool. Well, this is our very first interview show with Lightfoot Radio. And it just seemed to me and to you, G, as well, that the best person mm. for our very first interview would be Chris White. Because Chris, as you know, is um, a great friend of the show. He's been incredibly supportive of us. He's done some incredible debunkumentaries. Check out his archives at nowheretorun.com. I hope that's correct. But Chris, it's really, really good to have you back on the show. It's been a while. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really honored to be the uh, the first interview show on the the new format. I really mm-hmm. think the format is is great. The website is great. Everything is just looks like it's going to be really good. So I'm excited for for you guys and honored to be on the show. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's really been something we've been looking forward to because there's so much to chat about. And G. Yeah, welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for taking part with us on our first guest show. Um, We are looking forward to this. I have been listening to a lot of your stuff lately, uh, mostly a podcast, but I know Andy's also got a couple of your books as well. But we're very keen to talk to you about a lot of the things that you're doing um, currently. But if you wouldn't mind kicking off, Chris, just give us a bit of an update of what you've been up to uh, personally, what's going on with your life, because we know that you've had a move to the country. Right. Well, uh, I did. It was actually probably about a year ago, almost to the day, that uh, we moved out here to, um, well, it's close to Ducktown, Tennessee, and uh, that's not not a place I expect you to know. Uh, (laughs) Nobody knows where it is. It's a really small town. It's uh, right next to Turtletown, Tennessee, and right across from Big Frog Mountains, so it's uh, <laughs> it's out in the Appalachian Mountains here in East Tennessee, wow. and it's just a really beautiful country. It's kind of like um, the white water rafting capital of the country. It's just a really big, expansive kind of uh, wilderness, really. Hmm. But, but it's not too far away from some civilization. I'm not, I'm, you know, about thirty minutes uh, on either side. Well, on two sides of me, I'm thirty minutes from a, you know, pretty biggish town anyway. But one of the reasons that we moved out here was because we've always really wanted to um, to move out here to East Tennessee. Back in the band days, uh, we used to travel a lot, and every time we came out here, I always thought, you know, one one of these days I'm going to move out here. Well, I never actually came out here, but uh, but close to it, mm-hmm. the general area. And um, so we just about, I, like I said, about a year ago, we um, just some circumstances happened to where we were able to do it, and we decided we'll just up and move. So we didn't have jobs or anything figured out, and that ended up being kind of a difficult thing there at first because, you know, not a lot of industry out here, but everything got figured out, and we're just happy as can be. The benefits, 
there's a lot of benefits other than just sort of the desire of our heart kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that it's been good for me is it's given me a lot of time to to write. You know, we basically live in a cabin in the, in the woods and uh, it's given me a lot of time without a lot of distractions to do the writing that I really wanted to do about Bible prophecy mm-hmm. and a few other things. I'm writing two books, but the the Bible prophecy stuff has been something that I've wanted to uh, focus on. You know, I've done a lot of stuff like, you know, a lot of the, as you mentioned, the debunkumentaries and things like mm-hmm. that, ancient aliens. And always when I was looking into that kind of stuff, I always wished that one of these days when I say everything that I want to say or most of what I want to say with looking into the silly theories about stuff, that I wanted to just spend a lot of the time studying the Bible and studying the difficult parts of the Bible and see if I can try to figure out something about it, you know, mm-hmm. and really kind of, it, you know, it's one thing to spend hours and hours and hours analyzing and looking up and researching some claim of, you know, the History Channel about ancient aliens or whatever. And it's another thing to spend that same kind of time looking up the infinite, you know, word of God and and some of the more difficult things. Because Bible prophecy has suffered because it is complicated. It's not too complicated. It's not impossible. But it is, you know, you you have to really put some time and, and, and effort into the study of it in order to have a complete picture that doesn't contradict itself and so uh, i wanted to spend that kind of time with that and so it's afforded me the opportunity to do that and also one of the ideas was too is that i could if if i could get out here and kind of lower costs a little bit as far as you know living costs and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and uh pick up some part-time work and you know more than part-time then i would be able to sustain my personal needs better back in nashville you know my wife of course was you know working a full-time job and i was mostly you know working all day doing ministry stuff so basically i was doing it full-time which was great on one hand but on the other hand it was sort of making me reliant on donations just to you know to get by and pay the bills and stuff but uh, coming out here and being able to work and we kind of got a pretty good way to do that independently so I don't feel like I'm too bogged down with it. But at the same time, having an independent source of income is really great because I don't have to take any money from the ministry account so it can all go back into you know ministry stuff. So yeah. that's more freeing than you would think. And I, I sympathize with people like you know pastors of churches and things like that that – when, how they pay the bills is wrapped up into donations. Your hands are a little bit more tied mm-hmm. than you would think. And that was what I knew I needed to do if I wanted to say some of the things that I wanted to say because I knew that uh, I would lose a lot of uh, friends and colleagues and listeners in the whole nine yards if I said everything I wanted to say. And I wanted to be in a position to lose all that and still be able to do it. Sure. Well, Gee, you're also living out in your little bush hut, so it's just me now that needs to make a move to the country. And, uh... <laughs> so, GK, you live in the middle of nowhere too, huh? <laughs> well, we escaped the city oh, probably six or seven years ago and haven't looked back. So we've been living out in the bush for a little while, and it's just that city life was just getting a bit too much. It was getting pretty hectic where we were. I find that living in the country, uh, one of the things you mentioned is, um, you know, the cost of living is a lot less. But another thing, and no offence to city people, but country people are a different type of people. I grew up in a lot of small country towns, and... 
Yeah, they are. They're different. And out where we live, it's a wave as you're driving past and um, a chit-chat if you're wandering down the street. So you don't get that in the city. What I found in the city was people were shoving you out of the way to beat you to the ATM machine or try and beat you to that door. They'd actually mm. physically move you out of the way to get there. But here, it's nothing like that at all. So um, there's a lot of benefits for moving into the country. And, uh, you know, the pace is a lot slower. The, the stress is a lot lower. And the area we live in doesn't have problems for employment. It's one of the, uh, in the state I live in, which is Queensland, it's got one of the lowest unemployment rates in the state. So there's that benefit too. There is work here for people that want it and the cost of living is a lot lower. So there's a big plug for moving to the bush. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it's good to be able to have some of the resources available to you that wouldn't be available to you in the city and like the other day we had some pipes burst because of the coldness you know and we're out of water for a while but you know i've got a creek in the backyard so i just you know could get water from there and put it in the berkey water filter when we needed it you know that's something that's just you know not not always possible in the city i mean our spring water is basically already filtered so it's a pretty interesting situation that you have a lot more opportunities in those kinds of things too. That same thing happened to us too, Chris. Our first winter out here, our pipes burst as well. So that was a new experience because I live in the coldest area of one of the warmest states. But that was a bit of a shock. But once we got over that and learned, okay, these things happen out here, that was uh, a bit of an initiation. It had it was the <laughs> the coldest winter they'd had in 70 years or something. And uh, wow. But after we got over that, it was wow. pretty good. But sure, there are some downsides. But if you're not too far from a major centre, all those things fall into place as well. So... Chris, one of the things that Andy and I have been discussing and found really interesting, and I personally have been listening and waiting for every episode that's coming out, and I think your working title is the Anti-Messiah. Your work on that, could we discuss that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, the idea behind Anti-Messiah is the possibility that the Bible is telling us that the Antichrist will basically present himself as the Jewish Messiah. I say that a little more carefully than I have been. I Mm -hmm. I think that part of that, you know, was saying that the Antichrist would be Jewish. And I think that there are scriptures that go in that direction specifically. But I don't think it's necessary that he, you know, really is. I think he just needs to claim it and be able to prove it to a degree. Whether he is or not is is kind of a moot point. But I do think the scripture says that too. But nevertheless, the idea is that, for example, when he is going in the temple in Jerusalem and all the things that he's doing in the end time scenario that we see, the covenant and everything that we could get into, the false prophet and all the themes that we Mm -hmm. think of about the Antichrist all make the most sense if you plug in the idea that he's attempting to make it look like he is fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah that Jesus didn't. Uh, Whether or not, this is a question I'm trying to wrestle with, is whether he is claiming to be Jesus or is he claiming to be a different Messiah, the one that is actually fulfilling, you know, of course Jesus will fulfill the the prophecies of the millennium. He will make Jerusalem the capital city of the world. He will rule from the temple with a rod of iron. Mm -hmm. All these things will happen, of course, one day with Jesus in what we call the Millennial Kingdom, but the anti-Messiah concept is that the Antichrist, which is that's what Antichrist means, of course, uh, Christos mm-hmm. is the Greek for the Hebrew Messiah. So that's the basic idea of it, and the more I look into it, of course, the more I'm finding a similar pattern with the book that I did, Mystery Babylon. 
this mm-hmm. book is kind of an outgrowth, the necessary sort of next step. If Mystery Babylon is the, the Jerusalem that embraces the Antichrist, then this is kind of looking into the rest of, of the Bible and seeing what we can see with it. This is something that I think that a lot of people agree with. It's interesting that I'll talk to people who will say things like, well, yeah, the the Antichrist will convince the Jews that he's the Messiah. There's a lot of people that hold a lot of weird or, or different views about the Antichrist, whether that's incorporating aliens or Nephilim or transhumanism or we could go, you know, the Pope or whatever. There, there's a lot of different views that are out there about the Antichrist that people hold, yet they still also hold I think that it's strong enough of an obvious thing in Scripture that people still will try to make whatever they're doing with the Antichrist, make him also be accepted as the Messiah to the Jews. But I think that it's difficult to make a lot of those things work because the, the Jewish people are very particular about who is going to be accepted as their Messiah and who isn't as far as uh, the research that I've been doing is showing. But we can go from there. Okay. All right. Well, I know you've done some work on what the early church fathers had to say, and a lot of that was about the Jewishness of the Antichrist. So could we look at that? I know the very first one you said he spoke the most about prophecy and eschatology was Hippolytus. So do you think we could start there and and work our way through this a bit? Sure. Um, the early church, of course, is is always it's always good to find a doctrine in the early church. It never it never means that the doctrine is true, but it's always it's comforting, yeah. I guess, is one way to look at it. Uh, especially in the anti nicene fathers, that is, the fathers before around 300 and the Council of Nicaea, because right yes. around that whole time between 200 and 300, the hermeneutic changed. They started, you know, with or, or I don't know how to pronounce it, origin. The kind of started to allegorize scripture around that time, and people started to eventually change into the sort of loosey goosey method of Bible interpretation that prevailed during the Catholic Church really millennium or more. Uh, but before that, they were taking scripture at face value. They looked more like post Reformation Bible interpreters. And so that's always good to find yeah. any kind of doctrine with those guys. And Hippolytus, as you mentioned, wrote extensively about eschatology, and he Mm -hmm. is important because, of course, he wrote really early, but he also was a disciple of Irenaeus, who is one of the first writers that we have in the early church, and he also wrote extensively, and Irenaeus claimed to be uh, discipled from Polycarp, and Polycarp claimed to be a disciple of the Apostle John. So these four guys, the Apostle John, Polycarp, then Irenaeus, then Hippolytus, are all sort of tied together. So there's there's a little bit of, of weight that we can give to people like Irenaeus and Hippolytus. But uh, they were pretty clear. Um, this is, I think, from Hippolytus here. I'll give a few. Christ rose from among the Hebrews, and he, that is the Antichrist, will spring from among the Jews. He says, for in every respect the deceiver seeks to make himself appear like the Son of God. The Savior was circumcised, and he, the Antichrist, in like manner will appear in the circumcision. He says, but seeing now that we must make proof of what has been alleged at greater length, shall we not shrink from the task? For it is certain that he is destined to spring from the tribe of Dan. Hippolytus, we can mention a a number of them. Irenaeus, as we mentioned, I'll mention a few others so we can get the idea. What I was going to say, sorry, Go ahead, what sorry. I was going to say, the main point that Hippolytus was making that he would appear to be like the Son of God. That was what he was going to be. So that's important to drive that point home. Right. And I feel like they saw this pretty clearly because of things like, you know, being so familiar with the original languages 
And mm-hmm. seeing these kinds of things like, you know, what anti-Messiah, I mean, just on its face means that he's going to be a, an imposter Messiah. But but it's yeah. more than that. I mean, they quoted verses like talking about uh, Daniel eleven thirty seven. he shall not regard the God of his fathers. And I think that, again, there, if you, in the original language, you know, a lot of people tried to say that speaking of multiple gods or whatever, but that's a mm-hmm. phrase that mm-hmm. only appears in reference to, to Yahweh. It's a phrase that appears five or more times specifically, actually quite a number of times uh, in more of a broad term. But, but in terms of a specific phrase, it's always a reference to Yahweh, never a reference to pagan God. So when it mm-hmm. says the Antichrist will not regard the God of his fathers, it's a consistent theme at that point to a reference to Yahweh. But I, I would also say that they quote they quote a lot of verses like you know there are John five forty three is I come in my Father's name and you mm-hmm. do not receive me but if another comes in his own name him you will receive he's talking to the Jews of course talking about them receiving he uses yes. the word therefore receive palumbano which is uh, the same word that Jesus used about receiving himself but uh, that's when, right to the Christians that did receive him. Oh, I was going to say, I read it in Greek myself tonight uh, when I was listening to your podcast on it, so I'm just going to say, yes, it is there, Lambano, twice. Yeah, Lambano, that's it. Uh, I certainly don't know my Greek that well, but that's the basic idea. I don't think the Church Fathers had it all, you know, as far as the particulars together. That That is, I think that they said some stuff sometimes. That the Church Fathers, if, if anybody's done a, a number of studies on whatever doctrine about the Church Fathers, I do think that they... They sometimes were a little bit loose with their hermeneutic as well. It's a question that's worthy of study, because you look in the New Testament, the New Testament authors sometimes seemed kind of the same kind of loose with their hermeneutic, and maybe that's the correct hermeneutic, you know? Like, have you ever noticed that sometimes the New Testament authors will say something as a reference to, this is fulfilled, you know, from the Old Testament, and they quote Old Testament scripture, and you look back at the Old Testament scripture, and you're like, well, yeah, I guess so, you know, it's not... It's not perfect. You know, obviously there's a ton of Old Testament scriptures that are obviously completely fulfilled in the New Testament. Mm. There's no question. But there's a, there's yeah. those few that the New yes. Testament writers say that you're like, well, okay, I guess that, I mean, it's in the Bible, so there it is. And I, I feel like the early church was kind of, there did a lot of things like that. For example, uh, the, the idea that he's from the tribe of Dan, that the Antichrist will be from the tribe of Dan. Looking into that, you know, it's true that Jacob's giving this prophecy, he said this is what it's going to be, you know, talking about the 12 tribes, and this is how it's going to be in the end of days, he says, and he mentions all this stuff that's going to happen to each one of his sons. But when he comes to Dan, he mentions something that I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's like he's going to be a, a serpent in the path, biting the, the feet of you know those who pass him or something like that. And it's, it's close yeah. to Genesis 3.15 that the serpent will, you know, bite your heel, but you'll crush his head and that kind of thing. So that's their their argumentation. They have a few other arguments for it, which I'm not willing to say that's a match, that's definitely a reference to the Antichrist, but they saw some certain things like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, back to the first thing I said, with the Church Fathers, it's interesting that they believe this so conclusively. Like, it didn't. there isn't any variation bet- between it. Even the, the ones, you know, some people say the Church Fathers believed that it was Nero, or that Nero was going to be involved, or that he was going to raise from the dead, because Nero was long dead by the time a lot of these guys wrote. Mm-hmm. But there is a certain sort of segment of the Church Fathers that had a, a view that Nero was involved. But even then, the, the extreme ones that thought it was Nero, no question, they even thought Nero would go to the Jewish people and become like a Jewish person when he resurrected, 
that he would become a teacher of the law and would convince them that he had a Jewish name and that he was, you know, from the tribe of David and everything. They they came up with this sort of elaborate sort of thing where Nero would become a Jew to the Jews and then be accepted as their Messiah. Wow. And I make the point that even in that sort of odd view, I mean, because they had odd views of the Antichrist, the same as we do today, but they still were not willing to budge on the point that he would be accepted as the Messiah uh, by the Jews. And they even make the point in one of those things in talking about Nero, it's like, because we know that he wouldn't be accepted by the Jews if he wasn't a teacher of the law. So basically, that's the point they can't budge on. And I think that in itself is interesting. It shows that, yes, they sometimes went off the mark, I feel like, and, and, and saw things that maybe weren't there in terms of certain scriptures. But at the same time, the, the concept of the Antichrist being a Messiah to the Jews, something that like I said, a majority of people today still hold is pretty solid in the early church. So some of the the silly things that we might come up with today, like some might even try and say that, you know, Barack Obama is the Antichrist and silly things like that, because, you know, they try and fit in a situation where you might have, say, an Islamic Antichrist and, oh, well, Obama must be a Muslim, therefore he could be the Antichrist because he's doing X, Y and Z. So that would be an example of a modern day way of putting someone into the frame who shouldn't be there. Right. And there's a lot of that stuff that I think that people maybe just don't know a lot of the basic criteria, mm. you know, taking yeah. the Jewish part of it out of the equation. I think there's a lot of stuff that they're not plugging into it. Uh, for example, mm-hmm. you know, just that he, he's got to come from something with, you know, 10 kings and subdue three of them. And I would suggest it's probably one out of the four remnants of the uh, of Alexander's empire, according to Daniel 8. But, you know, there, there's things that, of course, Barack Obama can't fulfill in that regard. There, there's a lot of things that if yeah. he's going to fulfill, that he's, you know, wasting time, like build, building the temple and declaring himself to be God in it and, you know, raising from the dead and or apparently raising from the dead anyway. And he's got a lot of catching up to do if he is planning on doing those things. And I think people just really cherry pick certain things like this idea of a seven-year covenant, which, by the way, I really am trying to look at that in detail in this book, this idea of the seven-year covenant with many. We have made this to be a peace agreement, Mm -hmm. and maybe it is or maybe it isn't, but it certainly doesn't say that explicitly. It says it's a a seven-year covenant, which he will break... But in the middle of the week, he's going to break and stop sacrifices and offerings, which the way that that's worded suggests that, number one, the beginning of that covenant is starts the sacrifices and offerings. Whatever he does at the beginning of this covenant will include starting sacrifices and offerings. Again, this is one of those things that you'll you'll find a lot of people with a lot of weird views about the Antichrist will agree with, that at the beginning of this covenant, the temple will be rebuilt. They would phrase it like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, the seven-year peace agreement includes a, a way to rebuild the temple. It's almost a non-negotiable part of it. So I'm not saying anything that's new here. But what I would suggest, if you're going to really believe that a peace agreement is going to start a temple, there's a lot of logical problems there that, that are happening. Number one that there is no peace agreement. Uh, I would say this really strongly. There's nothing that can can happen peace agreement-wise, whether that's building a temple right next to it or whatever that's not going to incredibly anger the Muslims mm-hmm. because you can't right now, it's illegal. I mean, though, though technically Israel has sovereignty over the Temple Mount, you can't go up on, like a Christian cannot take a Bible up on the Temple Mount or cannot be caught praying on the Temple Mount. Yeah. It's illegal for Christian to pray That's on the right. Temple Mount. 
let alone a Jew making animal sacrifices on the Temple Mount. It's not going to happen without a big problem. And I think that even if some, you know, some kind of pretense to peace is made, I guess what I'm trying to say is that everything that's being described peripherally by the idea of sacrifices and offerings starting with the seven-year covenant suggests that it is messianic in nature. For example, there is only a really small minority of Jews, like, for example, those that are in the temple, that run the Temple Institute, that believe that it's it's mm. possible or theologically possible or physically possible to rebuild the temple that they're waiting for without the Messiah coming. Because, number one, theologically. Number two, technically they're supposed to build Ezekiel's temple, although they're planning to build Solomon's temple. Ezekiel's temple is just not going to happen without some messianic direction. Even today, they say they need messianic direction to figure out who exactly is from which tribe and who can do which jobs, let alone where the, the Holy of Holies was. These are things that most Jews will tell you, well, we need the Messiah to do that. That's why we can't build the temple yet. Even so, even if we take the idea that the Messiah is needed for that idea, I argue that the, the concept of the covenant, because it says covenant, it doesn't say peace agreement, and the Jews basically, they see Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one, which we see, of course, is a reference to the new covenant, uh, which says, you know, behold, the days are coming in which I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's repeated, of course, in the book of Hebrews, and we understand to be a reference to the new covenant that the Messiah makes. Well, they also see Jeremiah 31, 31 as a messianic prophecy, that they're waiting for the Messiah to come to them and make a new covenant with them. Except they interpret that covenant as a resurgence of the Jewish laws, a beginning of the sacrifices and offering again, particularly the daily sacrifice and the rebuilding of the temple. If you ask a Jew what the new covenant is, they would say one day the Messiah is going to come, make a covenant with us, build a temple and start daily sacrifices and everybody's going to start really keeping the Sabbath and everything else is going to really start up again. That's what I see is happening in the end times. Remember, Jesus in, in Matthew 24 says that, you know, you guys got to flee when you see the abomination of the desolation. And, and I hope that you don't have to flee on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Now, he, a lot of people interpret that as saying, well, you know, the Sabbath is reinstituted for Christians and Jesus doesn't want us fleeing, you know, if it's the Sabbath. That's not Jesus's point. Jesus is saying, look, I don't care if it's the Sabbath, you're fleeing. The point is, flee, flee, flee. I hope you're not pregnant and I hope you're not nursing. I hope it's not the Sabbath, but you're fleeing anyway. Right. What, what he was saying is those things would inhibit or slow down your fleeing. And so, for example, I, I think that the Sabbath in Israel, in a re-covenanted Israel in their mind, where it's, again, punishable by all kinds of laws, if you're breaking the Sabbath, it's going to be difficult for somebody to flee in that scenario. Right now, it's even in secular Jerusalem, it's hard to, to move around too much on the Sabbath. But in a Jerusalem where the temple is rebuilt, they believe their Messiah has come back. And in, in fact, if you understand the fact that a war is inevitable, if you rebuild the temple and start sacrifices on the Temple Mount, even if you have some sort of idea of, of a peace treaty, then you also understand why they don't care. Right now, even those that say, oh, we don't have to wait for the Messiah to build the temple, know that they can't build the temple because it starts an inevitable epic war with all Muslims that would converge on Jerusalem and, and attempt to destroy it. Uh, that's why they don't build the temple, because they don't want to destroy the state of Israel. They would like to keep it around, so they don't do that. But the thing is, is that connected with this idea of a rebuilt temple and a Messiah coming back and, and making a new covenant is the idea that the Messiah is here to now go to war with our enemies. Mm -hmm. He is here to, to go to war specifically with what they believe to be the, the Muslim countries that surround them and completely destroy them. It's a interlocked sort of thing. So if they really believe that their Messiah has come back, 
you know, let's say Elijah, they believe Elijah, who we, we would consider the false prophet, is calling down fire from heaven, you know, doing all the stuff that Elijah is supposed to do, and here the Messiah is rebuilding the temple and everything else. Why would they not believe that he's also going to defeat their enemies? And so why not build the temple? Especially if, as the Bible tells us, the Antichrist comes from a military background. You know, who can make war with the beast? Everybody's boast about him is that he's unable to be defeated in war. We see pictures of his war in Daniel 11, 40 through 45, and he's absolutely uncontested. He is unbelievably good at war, and that's because he has a supernatural ability to do it. The so-called god of fortresses is empowering his ability to completely destroy anybody. I don't know if it's a technological advantage or a spiritual advantage. The Bible tells us, of course, it's spiritual, so I guess that's the answer. But in the book of Revelation, we we hear it's actually Satan himself that's empowering his war-making capability in Revelation 13. So I would submit that the god of fortresses that he uh, worships in order to win these wars is, in fact, Satan. Nevertheless, the point is, they don't care. In fact, they would probably welcome an all-out Muslim war, which is, I think, exactly what you see in, in Daniel 11, 40 through 45. The king of the south, which is Egypt, its historic you know, Muslim enemy to the south, and, and, the, and the Muslim neighbors there uh, is the king of the south. And the king of the north is all of their uh, Muslim enemies, you know, Iraq, Iran, uh, Afghanistan, Turkey, Syria, all of the northern Arab nations they both attack the Antichrist first. That's an interesting sort of detail. that They attack yeah. him first. They have some Chris, sort of motive. Yeah. While we're on that point, can I just ask you how you come to the conclusion that that king of the north is that group of nations? Could you explain that? Because I know a lot of people would, would be expecting it to be something a bit further away, say, in Europe or even Russia or, or whatever. Can you tell us how you come to that conclusion that it's those countries? Sure, that's a good question. the The idea that it's uh, Russia, the King of the North is Russia, really started yeah. after the Cold War and really got underway with Hal Lindsey's uh, book because, of course, you know the big bad guy at the time was Russia. But other than that, there really isn't, you know, other than it being a scary geopolitical enemy at the time, there isn't any textual reason for it to be anything else. Daniel 11 is a very interesting chapter, and in it, it's basically the story, if you will, of the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. The, the Ptolemies, uh, of course, being Egypt and the surrounding sort of nations, and the Seleucids being the Seleucid Empire, which included those nations that, uh, that I mentioned and a few more. It, it kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit with different nations over the course of its mm-hmm. history. There is a, a great paper out there that's called Daniel's King of the North, Do We Owe Russia an Apology? by a, a great scholar who I've had uh, the pleasure of, of talking with and conversing with. His name is J. Paul Tanner, and it's a great paper out there. So he basically argues that, you know, to be hermeneutically consistent, if the king of the south is still the king of the south, you know, it's still Egypt, yeah, and it's yeah. been Egypt this whole time, and the king of the north yeah. is still the king of the north. It's still the same countries that it has been throughout the course of the chapter. And the, they would they would be the remnants of um, one of Alexander's generals, correct? Right. The Ptolemies the and Seleucids. the Seleucids were both, yeah, the Seleucids were that remnant of uh, Seleucus I or something like that. Yeah. Okay, yes. So that's why we would say, okay, it's not necessarily Russia or some European confederation, as in the Europe as we know it today, but more than likely to be from the former, you know, Seleucid Empire. That that's why. That that confederation of nations. So this brings us to the three kings theory. Um we might as well discuss that while we're here if that's possible. Could you explain that to us? 
Sure. The Three Kings theory is basically the idea that the king of the north and the king of the south are different from the Antichrist. Uh, that is, that there are three kings involved in this particular scenario. That is contrasted with the two kings theory, in which there is a more modern view these days that the king of the north is the Antichrist. Okay, So, of course, that would be preferable if you wanted to, to see this as an uh, Islamic messiah, then that would make a lot more sense. Um, so I argue that it's the three king view. This is the historic view. It's the view of just about everybody that wrote on it for a while. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this, and the three king view basically says that all the he's that I'm about to mention are a reference to the Antichrist. It's already been talking about the Antichrist. He'll pay no attention to the God of his fathers or the one beloved of women. He will not pay okay. attention to any... So he's going to say all this other stuff. It's you know, introducing the Antichrist. He will honor God of fortresses instead of those a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god, those who acknowledge him. He shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many. He shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the north shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Amorites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasures of gold and silver, and of all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But the news of the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out to, with fury to destroy and devote many to destruction." Anyway, you get the idea. That yeah, yeah. All this, yeah. The, the Three Kings view basically views all those he's as a reference to the Antichrist. The Two King view, yes. I believe, has to do something quite unnatural and something completely unprecedented is going back and forth in reference to... So let me try to read it as in a Two King view. At the time of the end, the King of the South shall attack him... Okay, so they would they would say there that that him is reference to the Antichrist. The king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north, that is the Antichrist in their view, shall rush upon him. Now that him there is a reference to the king of the south. So at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, that is the Antichrist, but the king of the north shall rush upon him, that is the king of the south, like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen with many ships, and he shall and he. I don't know who that he is supposed to be in that case. But the point is, you got to go back and forth. It's something that has never been done in this whole uh, Daniel 11. Keep in mind, the first part of Daniel 11 is the, the king of the north and the king of the south doing stuff, fighting stuff, going, you know, getting together, fighting yes. and doing a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. So there's been opportunities for this to happen before, but this would constitute the first time. I honestly think it's a forced idea to just make the Antichrist fit with the idea of a Muslim Antichrist. But I would say yeah. that even if we granted the idea, and I, I've talked with uh, Hebrew scholars about this, and they would say, you know, the things I just said, it would be unprecedented, it would be unnatural of a reading, but it is grammatically possible. You know, it's not, there isn't a, a trump card that you can say, well, no, in the same way that you can't prove the three king theory, you can't prove the two king theory in terms of grammar. Uh, it, they're both possible, but I would say one is unprecedented and unnatural. Uh, and it also contextually, if we take for granted their view and say, okay, let's say the king of the north is the Antichrist, you still have 
the King of the South, which is an Arab coalition, uh, Egypt, Israel's you know main foremost historical biblical enemy, and certainly even now an enemy, mm-hmm. uh, attacks the Antichrist, and the Antichrist defeats him. You know, so we already have the Antichrist at least defeating some Arab countries. And I read in Joel Richardson's book, The Mid East Beast. You know, he doesn't he doesn't even dwell on this point that his Islamic Antichrist is defeating a Muslim nation here. And then I would also say that he, you know, he does the same thing over the Egypt, Libyans, and Kushites, all of which are also Muslim. And indeed, when he goes into the glorious land, he is attempting to completely destroy Jordan. Because he shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of Ammon, uh, which is uh, the Ammonites, which are all uh, in Jordan. So what I argue there is that, that the Antichrist, when he comes into Israel, what we're seeing here, I believe, is by the reference of these other Islamic countries escaping from his hand, means that he was pursuing them. He was trying to do like he was doing to everybody else. So again, we have the Antichrist trying explicitly to, well, uh, at least implicitly, trying to attack uh, Muslim countries. And I submitted that what is probably happening here is that the Antichrist is attempting to fulfill Zephaniah 2, which uh, says that after the Messiah defeats enemies, there's going to be a also a rooting out of those in the land itself, like it, it mentions the coastlands of Gaza and all the different places where currently Palestinian-led or uh, held territories, or other territories like Jordan that were once part of the Davidic kingdom. There's a lot of stuff around Israel that technically Israel was given, but they can't hold that they really believe is a part of the true Davidic dynasty. So what I would submit is that when the Antichrist comes to Israel, he's not attacking Israel, and we have good reference to that, that he's actually attacking these other, you know, he's already defeated their macro enemies, is the way I put it. He's already completely destroyed and, and subdued the Muslim hordes of the north and south. And I think that the subjection is interesting there, too. This is, I think, the, the interesting thing about his war-making capabilities are so something, there's something so obvious about the way that he fights wars that people, like you see the Egyptians later on, they're giving him gold and silver. I mean, they were attacking him at first, but now they're following at his heels and giving him gold and silver and and just completely, completely subdued by him. Mm -hmm. So something he does in war is so terrific that there isn't any serious challenger. So, so he has completely pacified all the huge enemies, and he now goes into Israel and then to, to subdue their smaller enemies. And as I argue, and, and a big part of this is that this whole scenario is identical to the, the Jewish view of Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David, their eschatological viewpoint. In essence, what the Jewish rabbinic sources like the Talmud and the later rabbis have encouraged them to believe is exactly the scenario that we see the Bible warning everybody about the Antichrist. So in other words, everything that we see the Antichrist doing in Scripture, we see in Jewish eschatology saying, when you see a man do this stuff, then he's the Messiah. Hmm. So we have a, a, a something that if anything that I'm saying is true, then the, the Jewish people are going to be very vulnerable to a man that does stuff like the Antichrist is said to do here, because they're going to see that as exactly what their Messiah is supposed to do, hmm. right down to the very details. And this was one of the reasons that they rejected Jesus as uh, as the Messiah, is that right? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think that like Absalom or like Saul, or, or there's been occasions in, in the Bible where Israel chose a king 
that you know they wanted him to do this kind of stuff, but especially, as you mentioned, when it comes to the Messiah, the rejection of the Messiah, uh, the real Messiah, Jesus, was you know, in their own sources, because he didn't do this stuff, because he didn't conquer their enemies, because he didn't make Jerusalem the capital city of the world. Uh, you know, these are the kinds of things they didn't see Elijah. These are the other kinds of things that are prohibitions for them believing that Jesus was the Messiah. But it really does center, and I've read this in the sources that, that are scary, that they basically say, how are we supposed to know? How are we to make sure that we never get fooled again? Wow. And their answer is scary because it says, well, that's a simple question. If anybody ever does this, then he's it. You know, wow. If anybody ever destroys our enemies, sets up Jerusalem as the capital city of the world, b- builds a temple and starts the sacrifices again, then that's all we need to know. You mm-hmm. know, Somebody did it. That's him. Yeah. And that's the scary part about what all this stuff that I believe is right in front of our faces, that we all read these verses over and over again. And we know that the Antichrist is is in a Jewish context. We know that he's he's starting daily sacrifices and he's sitting in temples and these kinds of things. I know that uh, a lot of times people see the idea of him, the midpoint, when he breaks the covenant and stops the daily sacrifices. I argue that, you know, a lot of people see that as maybe he's changed his his view. You know, now he's trying to distance himself from Judaism and he's just going to declare himself to be God now and, and sort of, yeah, maybe he was going with the Jewish thing and starting sacrifices and all that stuff before, but now he's stopped the sacrifices and, uh, and got, calling himself God, which, of course, the Jewish people would not, you know, as far as I know, I don't think that they would immediately accept a Messiah that claimed to be divine. That is not a part of their theology. Uh, as yet, but but my my argument is that everything that the Antichrist does at the midpoint is more consistent with his messianic claims than before. Hmm. So the only thing that's different is now that he requires worship. So, for example, when he claims to be divine in the temple, he is doing two things that are extremely important with messianic prophecies. We, of course, as Christians, know that the Messiah really will be divine. I could take you to a number of scriptures in the Old Testament that argue that, you know, and I think that the Antichrist will have no real trouble, especially after he just got done resurrecting, you know, uh, in front of everybody. He's going to have no trouble telling them that, you know, here's the scriptures that say I'm divine. Uh, But I think that even more than that, the idea that he does so in the temple is more of a bolstering of his messianic claims, because this is one of the biggest things that the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to rule from the temple in the millennium. All the nations are supposed to stream to the temple and worship him. Mm. So even by doing what he's doing in the temple, and nothing's changing. He's actually being, if you will, more doctrinally correct. Now the Messiah is God. Now I'm sitting in the temple, just like the prophecies say. So let's begin the pilgrimage. But of course, he sets up a, an image of himself in the temple that then begins to receive the worship after that. And it seems that he does that to retain this idea that he is, you know, the Messiah that all the nations will stream to the temple and worship. But he, of course, as a as not really the Messiah, not really God, can't sit in a temple all day, you know, and, and so he puts up this this image to essentially be a placeholder for him so he can ostensibly be fulfilling the prophecies of having the nation stream to him sitting in the temple. But, of course, he can't. So that's mm-hmm. my view of, of that midpoint possibly also being connected to, to this whole scenario. 
Right. And I just remember you uh, mentioning that in your studies, you could see that there were, just like there is in Christianity, various viewpoints within Jewish eschatology and how they how they view things. But you were saying that there was one that seemed to be rather consistent, and that was just when the Messiah comes, their Messiah, many would be either, you know, willingly asked to convert to Judaism or suffer the consequences, if I can put it that way. Right. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting topic that I should I, I was corrected a little bit on this, so I need to, to okay. be clear on it. Technically they say that it's it's wrong to say that people should convert to Judaism after the Messiah comes. In in one sense they believe that the conversion door is closed once you know, once the kingdom age begins. But what you should say is, is that convert to, if you will, monotheism or, or mm. Messiah subjection. Okay. Uh, in other words, Gentiles will always be Gentiles in the millennial reign, you know, according mm. to, to them, and there's no conversion to Judaism. I don't really have a dog in that fight. I mean, whatever. But but the point is, is that, yes, you're right. What I said was that the majority of Jews believe, although it's not a doctrine that is, for obvious reasons, explained in great detail to Christians yeah. and, and everybody else, but when they believe their Messiah comes, that there is going to be a time before this, it's all set up, before the, the age of, uh, of bliss and utopia is ready to go, that requires a extirpation, hmm. a rooting out and killing of all those who won't be subject to this Messiah, right. that, that still, as they would say, are unrepentant Gentiles. So they needed to be rooted out and killed. So this, of course, is a really odd sort of view to have the Jews who, you know, are the victims of one of the worst genocides, religious genocides in history, or ethnic genocides, or both, are essentially saying that a big part of the end times plan is is a complete rooting out and killing of, of those who won't uh, follow their Messiah when he comes. Mm. Now, that's something that I quoted Joseph Sarachek, who wrote The Doctrine of the Messiah in the Middle Ages, and there's lots of those kind of, of statements throughout the rabbis, through the Talmud, and, and, and so on and so forth. But he actually makes the claim, almost offhand, that that view that I just mentioned is universal. Mm. It, almost everybody agrees with that view, and that's why I was like, Wow, that's amazing that this sure. is so widely believed. Yeah. And then, of course, I saw it sprinkled out through throughout those other ideas. They they believe that the Messiah, when he comes, will fight all these battles, these particular wars, and destroy their enemies. But after that, they believe that he will finish those wars with those big enemies. He will come back to Israel where he will be killed and then resurrected by Elijah or whomever, hmm. and then technically they believe in two messiahs. That one that goes to war and is killed and resurrected in, in Israel is Messiah ben Joseph. And then Messiah ben David comes on the scene at that point, and some say that he's the one that actually resurrects Messiah ben Joseph, but nevertheless, he's the one, Messiah ben David, that then begins to sit on the throne and to sort of preside over, first, a, a sort of revenge of those that killed Joseph, but then secondly, as we mentioned, the extirpation of the unrepentant Gentiles, that is, mm -hmm. to preside over the genocide of those who won't follow the Messiah. And of course, this is a, an exact chronological connection to what the Antichrist is said to do. The Antichrist fights the wars. He comes back victoriously to, to Israel where he is killed. He then mm -hmm. is resurrected from the dead, takes his seat in the temple, and then begins the abomination of desolation, which is followed by the greatest persecution of all time, mm -hmm. in which Jesus tells us, everybody, to, to run from Jerusalem because it's going to be so bad, it's going to be unlike anything else. 
Jesus also tells us that at this time, people are going to be thinking they're doing God a service when they kill you, and that you know mothers are going to give up their children, and, and mm-hmm. brothers are going to give up brothers, because everybody's going to be so happy, you know, there's going to be a lot of motivation for people to turn in these Christians or the people who won't get the mark, because I think that that's when really the mark takes effect. After the Antichrist declares himself to be God, he seems to have complete and total control over everything and then can thereby issue these sort of decrees like the mark and so on and so forth. So I see the mark coming really in the context of the great persecution that uh, decree after he sits in the temple. But I don't really know if it's as clear as I'd like it to be as far as the chronology of when the mark is, is set forth. Right. That's really fascinating. What, what do you have to say there, G? Uh, we're covering a lot of ground here, Chris. And um, I was going to suggest to listeners to definitely have a close reading of Daniel 11, because after hearing what you had to say uh, about the three kings I had uh, theory, I went back and had a very close read of that. So I'm suggesting that, and I, I know you'd agree, Chris, that people need to you know, study the word for themselves, be a good Berean and, and work it out for themselves. So I'm going to suggest people read Daniel 11 and probably to read the whole chapter so you can get it in context. Um, that was one thing I was going to say. But the question I got, the idea of the two messiahs, uh, Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David, where, where does that come from, Chris? Is that from the Talmud? Uh, yeah, that that is from the Talmud. It's the, the idea that... Zechariah, I believe it's 1210, says that they will they will look upon him who they pierced and they were, will mourn for him as, uh, you know, a mother uh, mourns for her only child. I'm paraphrasing that. But the idea is that that's a clearly messianic prophecy, and there we have a, a dead Messiah. And that is, of course, not something right. that they're going to attribute to Jesus. So they had to come up with a different scenario. The Talmud ultimately comes to the conclusion of the Messiah ben Joseph idea, that there will, in fact, be two messiahs in the end times. Messiah ben Joseph mm-hmm. is the subordinate messiah. He is. If they just use the word messiah by itself and don't qualify it, it's a reference to the next mm-hmm. messiah, Messiah ben David, who comes mm-hmm. directly after that. He is the, right. the Messiah, Messiah, but Messiah ben Joseph is just as much in one way, in their view, as, as of a Messiah as Messiah ben David. Uh, Messiah ben Joseph, in their view, appears to kind of fade away from the scene after his resurrection. Uh, you don't hear much right. about him or what, what happens with him after that. Uh, it's all Messiah ben David after that. I make the point that I think that since the, the basis of that theory is wrong, the Messiah, we know that but the true interpretation of the Messiah, that Zechariah 12.10, is the same guy that was killed and resurrected is the same guy that's going to sit on the throne of David. It's not two messiahs, and we know that. And I think that the Antichrist will, will ultimately, after his apparent resurrection, make that pretty obvious, too. I don't think that they're going to have a lot of trouble seeing the two messiahs theory as one messiah theory because it's just it can easily be proved from from scripture and especially they're going to have it right in front of their faces a guy that resurrected from the dead and then takes his seat in the temple so all of a sudden that notion is going to be shattered but it's not a huge notion it's just a sort of a polemic that they have to sort of get out of Zechariah 12:10 so they wouldn't have a problem with it being only one messiah as long as they can figure out a way to okay. explain Zechariah 12:10 without it being Jesus 
Okay, that clears it up for me because I, I was wondering even when I was li listening to the podcast because I hadn't come across this before and I thought some of our listeners wouldn't have come across that before either. Um, you know, we started out discussing the church fathers and their view of a Jewish Messiah and now we're really discussing sort of Jewish eschatology too as far as the Antichrist being Jewish as well. But you would have a lot of scriptures for Christians about the Antichrist being Jewish or at least portraying himself as Jewish. Could you share some of those with us, Chris, um, just so we cover the, the biblical aspects? I know we already have done some, but I know there's more. Sure. Well, as far as specifically being Jewish, I would say Daniel 11:37 is probably the best one for yep. that. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think it's a pretty clear one. Uh, he shall neither regard the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor any other God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. The idea that the God of his father's phrase is only used uh, in reference to Yahweh, it's never used yeah. uh, in a reference to any other thing, I think is a, is a clear one. You know, there's some other ones that people say are a reference to him being actually Jewish. For example, uh, let's see, one that people use... Uh, you shall die, the, uh, Ezekiel 28.10, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, mm -hmm. for I have spoken, says the Lord. You know, those kind of things I'm not sure of. I, I, I take the point that, you know, that was used by the church fathers, but I'm not sure that that actually, uh, for a few reasons, it, it could be. But as far as that, him actually being Jewish, there's not too much. But what, when it comes to the idea of that he will present himself as the Jewish Messiah, I think we have quite a bit. We mentioned right. already the idea that he that he sits as God in the temple of God. That right there shows that he's at least paying some sort of lip service to the idea. Let's see. I'm trying to scroll down here in my my list. Some um, of these. I was just going to say John John five forty three. We've discussed that one. That one's pretty clear. Right. That's a really good one. The idea that he says, uh, "Do you have it in front of you?" Yeah. If I, I come in my Father's name, and you receive me not, if another shall come in his own name him ye will receive. So yeah, I think that's a clear one. Right. The, most of the other proof texts, quote unquote, with this are less than proof texts and more of sort of ex extrapolation. Like we mentioned things like the seven-year covenant. I think the seven-year right. covenant it implies that strongly. If it, if it has to do with starting the daily sacrifices, that's an extremely Jewish thing to do. The false prophet, I think, you know, gives us an idea of what this guy is supposed to do, that he's that he's acting like Elijah. He's calling down fire from heaven. He's, you know, all these different things that, that it says he does. It seems like he is attempting to be Elijah. And, of course, in a Jewish context, if Elijah, uh, a guy pretending to be Elijah, is is promoting another guy that's what the jews are expecting elijah to do is promote the messiah they're not they won't accept a messiah unless a prophet comes and tells them that that's him of course we could you know i mentioned things like the daniel 11:45 he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain i would argue that that's a reference to jerusalem at the very least it's in israel yeah. is where he yeah. sets up his headquarters you know, there's these kind of things. We talked about the wars that he fights, and it's all against Arab countries. You know, that's that's significant. So a lot of it is kind of that kind of subjective stuff. I wish there was more like, you know, I got you a proof text like the Daniel, uh, the verse about the God of his father. But 
most of it is this kind of just sort of thinking logically and extrapolating a little bit up from it. But then again, if you think about the, the doctrine of the Antichrist in Scripture, there is very little in the way of explicit proof text for anything. Most of the doctrine of the Antichrist is based on like one phrase, you know, the, you know or one line. So there's certain things that we know mm-hmm. for sure about the Antichrist that we only get in one place or one book of the Bible or one verse or whatever, because there's just not a huge amount on the Antichrist. And when we do get the information on the Antichrist, a lot of times it's in a type or other kind of situation where we have to, you know, use some strong and solid hermeneutical skills to extrapolate, you know, in good information from it. So I, I think the doctrine of the Antichrist in itself is a difficult one, and that's why you get a lot of uh, loosey-goosey stuff with it. But, you know, I, I do think that what we're talking about here does have a, a solid and a logical basis. Chris, what about people that will be listening now that have for many years been taught and believe that the Antichrist will lead a 10-nation coalition that will be, you know, come, rise up out of Europe? A lot of those people that will be listening to us now would probably think that we've sort of lost lost the plot a bit ourselves. How do we deal with that? Well, because to be honest with you, Chris, the bits that I've heard you've said, I tend to actually agree with. And I've always had a bit of a problem with that 10 nation thing. But because, you know, so many of my fellow believers around me believe it, you know, you're a bit careful what you say because you don't want people to think, well, doesn't he understand the scriptures? So how do we help them to understand what we're talking about here in light of that? Well, that's a good question. And first of all, I would say that there's there's something completely right about that, and there's something that's usually said mm-hmm. in the context of that that's that I believe is not right. I do right. think that the Antichrist will come from a ten-nation confederacy and that he will subdue three mm-hmm. of them. And I would say that that's even the idea that a lot of Jewish people have, that the Messiah, when he comes, will come from a different place like that. He'll come on the scene from somewhere out okay. there. Uh, but nevertheless, the the problem, I think, is when people say that that ten-nation confederacy is going to be the revived Roman Empire. That doctrine of the revived right. Roman Empire, I believe, is flawed. It is based on really two sections in Daniel. Uh, I say two. Technically, it could be three, because what they're doing is combining Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and saying that they are the same picture, that the statue of that Nebuchadnezzar sees and the vision of the four beasts that Daniel sees, they say they're representative of the exact same thing. And so therefore, if that's true, then since we know the feet of iron is a reference to Rome, then the fourth beast must also be Rome, the fourth beast, which has 10 horns, etc. So that's why we say, okay, well, I guess Rome's coming back because we've already Mm -hmm. forced the doctrine of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 being the same thing. So now we're stuck between a rock and a hard place and have to make the fourth beast a, a Roman empire when in fact... The four beasts are allowed to continue at the same time. I make the case of that the that the four beasts are contemporaneous. That is, it's a picture of the nations that are on the earth in the end times. Like all four of those beasts, the leopard, uh, the lion, etc., the bear, will actually be on earth at the same time. It's a picture of the last days completely. They're contemporaneous, and I think that the grammar and a lot of things in that chapter show us that. Uh, Joel Richardson actually posted a blog recently and and referenced uh, my commentary on Daniel and a number of other people. He's got a pretty extensive uh, collection of commentaries on Daniel where he referenced what I just Mm -hmm. referenced, the contemporaneous uh, contemporaneous, uh, beast view, but he called it something different. I can't remember, but that he referenced like, you know, really great scholars from all these different ages that had the same view, which, which I was glad to see because I was a little worried that, you know, I, could, I could, couldn't find very many people that had the same view. And it seemed quite clear. The other verse that people say that he's Roman from is from uh, Daniel nine twenty six and 7 where it's a reference to, let's see, I'm sorry here, 9.26 says, 
And and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end shall come with a flood, and the end there shall be a war, desolations are decreed. And so they say, of course, the people of the prince to come, that is, since the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and the people of the prince to come, that is, his people, Romans, destroyed the city, but he's yeah. the prince to come. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I make the point in the commentary that, that this is a reference to Titus, and I say this as a futurist. I, of course, think Daniel 9, 26, 27 is a reference to the future and the, and the Antichrist in the next yeah. verse. But the reference to this being Titus, it says this this way because... Of course, Titus was a prince to come at the time that Daniel was writing. Titus didn't exist at all, or would for hundreds of years at the time that Daniel was writing. And the reason it says it as the way it does is the people of the prince to come will destroy the sanctuary is because as Josephus couldn't make it any more plain, Titus was doing everything he could, running around Jerusalem, trying to get his soldiers to stop destroying the temple. According to Josephus, he cannot be blamed for the destruction of the temple because he was adamant. He was out there in the thick trying to pull people off of it. But the people, Josephus makes the point, were just too much in a rage, too much in a a fervor, and that they wouldn't even pay attention to him trying to get them to stop. So the Bible doesn't put the blame on Titus for the destruction of the temple. It puts the blame on his people. So. If you take those two verses away, 2 and 7, and, and this thing in 926, then there is no reference to the Romans. Now, that being said, the the ten-nation confederacy that the Antichrist comes from, I do think it's going to be somewhere in the West, though I feel it has to be, because of Daniel 8, limited to the four empires that split up after Alexander. In my opinion, this is not solid. I would be willing to be completely wrong about this, but probably somewhere around Greece or Thrace or that area right there is where I would kind of guess. But I think that it doesn't really have to be there. Um, the Ten Nation idea, I don't know how this is all going to happen, but I would suspect that this is a person who, in the midst of a lot of trials with Israel, a lot of you know serious problems from their enemies around them, whether it be Iran or some new person or new, new situation that goes on, there is a nation confederacy that maybe includes Israel as a part of it, or at least has some sort of part of that confederacy that that requires a defending of Israel that would come in and sort of make, he'll make a name for himself as a defender of Israel, I believe, in the context of defending their enemies. But it's not until the covenant is made that he begins to fight the king of the north, king of the south wars that uh, I I believe is, is there. So I don't know. I try to tread lightly in the book and other places about exactly how that looks with the Ten Nation Confederacy and what countries and, and everything. But I know that the Bible isn't saying it's Rome. But, you know, at the end of the day, maybe it is. But I would say it's not a likely possibility because I don't believe Rome can be said to come out of Alexander's empire. But that's my view. Yeah, so we have to keep our eyes and ears open and, and continue to study and at least allow that for a possibility Um because I didn't mean to intimate that I don't agree with um, a lot of, you know, the current stuff, but I had inklings that it wasn't completely as we'd had read it. For example, uh, Hal Lindsay's late great planet Earth. I always had difficulties with that, but I couldn't put my finger on them in the day, you know, back in the day when it first came out. So I guess that was the point I was making. Right. And then I think probably these days it's it's kind of shifted more towards the anti-Islamic view. So 
a lot of the really, yeah, really big yeah. prophecy people that are out there are really promoting that these days. So it shows how fickle the whole thing is that, you know, 30 years ago they were saying this is what the Bible says. 30 years later, it's completely yeah. the opposite according to the same people. Yeah. Well, well, this is um, probably a good point to switch to another topic if we do have time to discuss your study on the book of Daniel because I found it fascinating because – Daniel is an interesting character because he's an upstanding, uh, righteous person that we can look to as an example in the Bible. But also the book itself, it has so much that's historical, but also futuristic. I like your take on Titus because I knew that was in Josephus as well. So that would be, you know, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD when Titus had led the invasion after Vespasian had to return to Rome. I like your take on that. But in Daniel, and especially your work on it, I'm strongly encouraging people to go and listen to your series on Daniel and to buy your book on Daniel, just because I think there's a lot in there that people will be surprised that they may have heard before, but not put in the way that they put it. So, well, why did you choose to do the study on Daniel? What was your thinking in choosing that one particular book? Um, I did that because I knew I was going to be doing some work on prophecy and I never felt like I knew the book of Daniel like I should. And it was always sort of my Achilles heel with prophecy is that I didn't understand Daniel. And uh, the experiences that I've had up to that point showed me that if I did these verse-by-verse studies through a book and, and was accountable and you know published it online and, and all this other stuff, that I would be forced to do good research and to... Uh, you know, just to be thorough with it. So that would be the best way to learn it. So that's that's why I decided to do Daniel, is so I could learn Daniel. But you're right, it's one of the most amazing books in the Bible. It, it's got everything from the basics of Christian living to the most clear prophetic pictures that Scripture has to offer. It's just this wide range of edification, and I don't even know what to call it, just amazing. I mean, it's 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 one of the things that really proves the Bible is what it says it is, that is, writing history in advance, something that is not possible. Uh, and because of that, it's got a lot of critics out there uh, as well, but being mm-hmm. able to interact That's with true, that yeah. stuff... As, as it usually does, gives me sort of even more confidence in the, in, you know, the conservative view. Um, never be afraid of critics. Never be afraid to look into what <laughs> critics have to say because you'll just be like, oh, brother, is that what they were saying? Is that their proof for this? Like, there is nothing yeah. to worry about, you know. <laughs> yeah, with Daniel, the character himself, I see him as someone who, you know, we're mottoed after. He, he did set his face like flint. He was happy to be respectful of the king or whoever he was serving, but when it came to the things of God, he was unflinching. And, you know, he he didn't waver and um, was always upright and always sought to please God. So I find the character himself inspirational in a lot of ways, and I'm sure a lot of people do. I mean, you learn about Daniel in the Lions Den at Sunday school, you know, when people used to go to Sunday school. Uh, Sadly, uh, many don't these days. But yeah, Daniel, the character, but the book itself, um, now your take on it, I noticed a lot of it does base itself around the Seleucid or Seleucid Empire again, doesn't it? Well, certainly with Daniel 11, and it does come up uh, in other places, most of the stuff that I would say about the Seleucid Empire, it's what every conservative would speak about. You know, like Daniel 11 up until verse 36 is all about the Seleucids and Ptolemies. But at 36, you know, is when you have Hmm. the verse 36. Of Daniel 11 is when people start to see the Antichrist or not see the Antichrist, depending on if they're, you know, historists. Ah, you never get that word right. Or futurists. But uh, (laughs) historicists, there we go. But yeah, I think it does come up certainly in that chapter. 
Yeah, especially in that one. And I would also encourage people to go and study the Seleucid Empire for those reasons, get a bit of an understanding of the background, um, because later on, as we know in history, especially when we have an understanding of the Maccabees, you know, in the inter- intertestamental, there's a word for you. <laughs> I don't know if I just made that up, but, you know, in the inter- intertestament period, um, we... <laughs> we have, um, we could say, a prototype of the Antichrist, Antiochus or Antiochus IV, who comes and defiles a temple, you know. And that's why I think people need to have an understanding of that period, because you can get glimpses of what you may or may not see in the future of what an Antichrist might be, because uh, Antiochus IV called himself Epiphanes. Um, in other words, you know, God manifest. So he, he made himself a claim bigger than at least I believe he, he should be making. <laughs> oh, certainly. You know, that's an interesting subject. This idea of the history of this particular chapter was really hard to come by. I didn't find a lot of, you know, history books written about this particular subject. And I looked for a while, especially when it came to these kinds of things with a lot of historical things happening. I felt like I wasn't doing myself or anybody else a service by going to other commentaries with that. I wanted to hear what the secular world said about this, you know, to hear it from, from their mouths, to see exactly how much it was you know, matching up with what they were saying. Because I think sometimes when you read biblical commentaries about history, you know, they tend to color it a little bit on their side, which I understand the secular world does the same thing. They color it you know, as well. But at least you can hear their own words, and you get more faith uh, in the in the scriptures that way too. When you see that it's uh, it's exactly what the Bible was saying, but it does it does help you to understand for that reason. People like Antiochus or other people like that, but Antiochus is of course one of the most uh, direct types of Antichrist. And you know, I think at the same time it, it's interesting. I think right around somewhere around Daniel eleven thirty seven. I don't know where I'd say, but at some point it it does the same thing that the Bible does with like the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon. When Ezekiel, for example, is prophesying, he starts out talking about, you know, this earthly king, but transitions into clearly he's talking about Satan and talking about things that the king of Tyre couldn't have done, you know, couldn't have been in the Garden of Eden. And and so I think you see that kind of thing here, too, where once it goes to the Antichrist, it almost leaves Antiochus in the dust. No longer does this apply to Antiochus anymore. But there's this time period where it's kind of like a fade in, fade out, where it sort of shifts between Antiochus and, and the Antichrist. There's this moment where they both apply, and then as it starts to fade out, it's just the Antichrist. Yeah, my philosophy is if we study history and study the scriptures, we can learn where we've come from, but we can also learn where we're going. Because if you follow that, um, we're talking about Antiochus IV or Antiochus IV, go and research his history. But if you follow history and you follow the scriptures, you'll know where where we're going to end up. And he is a, a great prototype of what the Antichrist might look like or might be about. But after that, you know, we have the Maccabean Revolt. And from there, this is how the Romans got involved and how we ended up with the Herodians, well, not the Herodian party, but the Herod family running Judea. And so if you trace that, because, you know, um, you, you might open your Bible and you'll see Jesus is born and next minute King Herod's wanting to slay the innocents. And you, you might wonder, well, how did that all come about? And if you study history, you, you can learn that, which is why I'm strong for believers to have an understanding of um, not just their scriptures, but also secular history, because quite often it fleshes out and helps you understand how we got to where we are. And also God's hand in so much, uh, it just 
helps me to have more faith in what I'm reading. It increases my faith when I study history, if I can be as bold as to put it like that. Oh, I agree. I'm actually reading a a, a huge a history of Jerusalem right now, and it's just amazing. Like you just mentioned, the Herodians and that whole dynasty there. <laughs> I learned so much yeah. about that that I just never knew before. So many things are coming together and filling in pieces that I never really figured I needed to know, you know? And uh, so it just gives you a much bigger and broader view. And always, the more you learn about this stuff, the more faith you'll have that the Bible is true. You can never be afraid to to learn about stuff. Even the book that I'm reading kind of comes from a very critical point of view, you know, uh, or more or less mm-hmm. critical, like they don't really believe the stuff in the Bible actually happened. They sort of do. But, but, you know, even in that context, you can still see that it's all really true. So you just can't wash the truth out of it as much as you try. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I agree. Um, and just a little plug here. Coming up, uh, I think it'll be our next show, uh, Andy Tate's going to take us through a history of the, the Herod family. It, we'll be discussing that. We'd planned to for a while, which is, I guess, why it's partly been on my mind. So there's a bit of a plug for the next show. <laughs> Thanks, T. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, I like that's all on my shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, back to you, Chris. Well, yeah, that's a that's always a really good idea to be studying. I think that the Daniel Project really costs a lot of, of study time in history and things like that, just because I felt like oh, so many, in reading commentaries and listening to uh, sermons on Daniel, I felt like there was just a lot of the same kind of things that people say. For example, in Daniel 9, um, most sermons I heard about that, they quoted, you know, um, what's the name of it? Oh, I'm drawing a blank right now the one guy that did the study about the the timing you know jesus uh coming into the gates of jerusalem at the right time gosh i can't even think of the guy's name anyway everybody just quotes him and just says you know a guy did a great study on this here it is you know let's move on to the next verse Hmm. and i understand that it's a really difficult thing but there are so many problems just regular logical problems with with that idea and of course, like I said, Daniel nine, I'm I'm totally futurist. I think that it's talking about the Antichrist. I don't think it's all about 70 A.D. Uh, or anything like that. But at the same time, there are some problems with what we've kind of been doing in the last hundred years or so with that passage. That if you just take it for granted and just read the commentaries and just listen to the sermons and don't check to make sure everything lines up historically, you know, and I think the Bible does that intentionally. You know, if you, if something is not lining up and, and you know, the, all the facts aren't fitting, then there's probably something that you're supposed to be doing differently there or see a little bit differently. And and ultimately, my view of Daniel 9 is not terribly different than, than most people. We get to the same place, basically, uh, just got there in different directions. But that's the kind of thing I mean, is that not taking stuff for granted with these incredibly difficult sections of Scripture is the way to do it. Yeah, look, all I can say is that we do really need to study it for ourselves. But if you want to have a bit of a good grounding and, and maybe something from a not a completely different angle, but laid out a bit clearer, I'm going to suggest Chris White's series on Daniel. It's in a podcast series on his website and also his book. Strongly urge you to go and look at that and have your Bible in hand as you listen to each episode and take notes and study it for yourself because you might just find that your view may change or you might find that it reinforces some of the stuff you already believe or you may very well be sending me an email asking me why I suggested it in the first place. But <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> You're doing but, well, um, You're doing well. <laughs> I just really wholeheartedly suggest that people do listen to your podcast series and read the book and um, with an open mind and with the, you know, the Bible in, in, in 
hand and have a look at it. But anything else from you, Andy? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Chris, am I right to say that they could go and uh, find that on Nowhere to Run? Is that right? Nowhere to Run under maybe, is it the biblical prophecy section? Right. Well, probably for all the stuff we've been talking about today, uh, the website Bible Prophecy Talk has all this information on it. And everything that I have done so far in either book form or planning on doing in book form, you can also get in an audio format. So I've pretty much the Mystery Babylon book, the Daniel book, and also I'm basically podcasting one chapter at a time as I'm writing this book. So uh, you might have to search around a little bit to find all those chapters, but you can go to the archive section at Bible Prophecy Talk and get all that stuff for free. So there's not really any need to buy the book if you're an audio listener anyway, which I suspect many people listening to this are. That's great. And I mean, yeah. I also encourage you just to go get onto Amazon and, and check out Chris White. Um, he's got a selection of various books that he's got there, and they are all brilliant. So, yeah, really, really encourage you to do that. Thanks. All righty. Well, <laughs> we'll probably wrap it up there if you guys are happy. Welcome to our no. world, Chris. This is, <laughs> this is how we roll. <laughs> it it's fine. <sighs> I know how it is. <laughs> Uh, well, Chris, this has been really great to have you with us. There's so many questions I actually had. I wish I could have gotten into, actually, because it's really, really interesting. And that's why I say the best is to just go listen to the podcast and, um, yeah, and just just take it in. You know, just, just try and be open when you're listening to it. And like G says, you know, have your resources with you. Go and check out what Chris says. Go test it, you know. But this has been great, really great to have you with us. Well, I appreciate it, and you know, I'll be glad to come back anytime or whatever. And just want to encourage you guys to keep doing what you're doing. I'm really excited about the new show, a new format, and looking forward to you know helping any way I can and, and seeing you guys grow and and just do a lot more ministry like you've been doing. So thanks again for having me on. Thanks so much, Chris. And Eugene, what do you have to say? Yeah, no, listen seriously. Thanks, thanks very much, Chris. Um, really appreciated your time and definitely we will be calling on you again because we do have a lot more that we'd like to go through with you so appreciate your time thanks very much take care and god bless you and your family mate all right thanks a lot it's always a pleasure bye-bye all right bye-bye thank you for joining us we hope you've enjoyed our show you can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com.